Well, it's great to see you all uh, here this morning. I wanted you to think a little bit about um, worship in, uh, in the Jewish realm during the days of Jesus. You know, it's a little bit different than our worship is today. You think about the history of the Jewish people as they worshiped the Lord down through the ages. They worshiped with a temple. And uh, that is the place where every year the Jews were commanded three times a year to come and worship the Lord, bringing their sacrifices and their offerings to the Lord, that they might bring their bulls and lambs to the, to the slaughter, to be slaughtered there by a priest. Three times a year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering is where they needed to, to go. So imagine us, we're at Rock Valley Bible Church, and we need to go to Chicago like three times a year to worship at the big temple in Chicago. And uh, for the Jews, that worked out really well as long as all the Jews lived close by Jerusalem. Um, but then there was a time when they were exiled into Babylon, a thousand miles away, and it became really impossible for them to come to Jerusalem three times a year. When Ezra came back to the promised land from his captivity from Babylon, it took his caravan four months to get back to Israel. So even logistically, even if they could have been let go four months here, four months back, four, just 12 months is not enough time to worship back there. And, and it was probably during this exile period where the Jews were compelled to really rethink their worship in the absence of access to a temple. And thus the synagogue was born. This is a place where the Jews could assemble and worship the Lord on a local level. And uh, on a national level, of course, there still was the temple. But the, the synagogue was the local level. The synagogue, if you put to me, it's two words. Sin or soon means with. Agog means to lead. So synagogue, with leading or, or with together. A, a synagogue is literally a gathering place together. And, and after the exile, when, when, the, when the Jews came back, and uh, they, they began, they didn't all come back to Israel, they were all scattered around, and they began to build synagogues. In fact, we have archaeological evidence that about that time, we were 300 B.C., when a lot of um, synagogues were, were built, and they were sprouting up all over the, the place. The synagogues became the centerpiece of the Jewish community. It's a place where, where Jews would gather together for religious instruction, uh, for um, regular worship on the Sabbath. Uh, the reading of Scripture, the prayers, the, the teaching from the rabbis, and, and the gathering of the early church and small churches today feel today much like ancient synagogues. What we're experiencing here today, it's much like the Jews would have experienced in their synagogues where people gather together right, for, with instruction and um, just, just formation just with the Scriptures. It's interesting, though, that the synagogue is nowhere commanded in the Old Testament. I mean, it's just not there at all, but it is there in the New Testament when you see in the days of Jesus, he went into synagogues all across Israel. Listen to how Matthew summarized the ministry of Jesus, Matthew four twenty three, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. We see that he went to the synagogues. I mean, the synagogues, though, wasn't mentioned in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, still was not a bad thing. Jesus was in the synagogues often teaching and healing people. Uh, we have a couple recorded instances of Jesus in the synagogue healing people. Uh, in Capernaum, we read of Jesus healing a man with an unclean spirit. And in another synagogue, a man came to him with a withered hand, and he healed him as well in the synagogue. And we have a bunch of statements that tell us how Jesus taught in the synagogues. 
But you realize there's only one place in all the New Testament where we have the actual words of what Jesus said when he taught in the synagogues. Little quiz time. Any, anyone understand and remember where that might have been? What chapter, verse of the Bible? Where Jesus comes into the synagogue and a text is read and he preaches. Luke. Luke chapter 4. Wonderful. Great. Good. Luke chapter 4. Jesus coming to... Remember what city was? Anyone? Nazareth. He comes to his hometown, the synagogue he'd been to many, many times before we grew up. Had seen many, many services there. And on that day, Jesus took a scroll and he opened it to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to attendants. And he sat down, which was the custom of rabbis back then. They they would sit to teach. And he sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were faced on him. And Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus. They spoke well and they marveled the gracious words coming from his mouth. He was just preaching there and there's the, the, the buzz about people. It's Jesus. Oh, what a good teacher he was. But soon their, their sayings, their nice sayings turned to evil sayings. They were filled with wrath as Jesus confronted their lack of belief. And in fact, by the end of Jesus' sermon in his hometown, the congregation rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of a hill, where the town was, was built. And so they could throw him down the cliff, right? And then stone him with stones was the plan. But passing through their midst, he, he went away. Somehow he just kind of, he used his Jesus powers and was gone. I don't know exactly how that worked, but it didn't end so well with Jesus in the synagogue that day as people of Nazareth refused to believe in him. Well, this day in Nazareth, the only day which we know of exactly what Jesus taught in the synagogue Received well initially and then rejected. Well, this morning, as we come to the book of Acts, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, verse by verse, section by section. We're going to see something similar. We're going to see Paul entering a synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, and we will have the privilege of hearing an actual sermon that Paul preached when he was in that synagogue. And while initially the people received it well, that reception similarly turned to wrath. As the Jews drove him out of their city, angry with the message that Paul was preaching. My message this morning is entitled, A Sermon in the Synagogue. comes from Acts chapter 13. You can open your Bibles there if you haven't yet. Acts chapter 13. And like the ministry of Jesus, this is the only recorded sermon that we have of the apostles preaching in the synagogues. We had Acts 2, Pentecost. Peter was in the temple. Uh, when Stephen preached his long sermon in Acts chapter 7, he was um, um, there in the temple as well. Uh, but we read many, many times, like the uh, uh, book of Acts is filled with how many times Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys went out and, and spoke and taught in their synagogues the message of the Messiah. We read about that last week. If you look back in Acts chapter 13, verse 5, it says, They proclaim the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews. And and we don't know exactly what it is they proclaimed, but they went on the synagogues uh, on the island of Cyprus and they just proclaimed, but we don't know what it is exactly they proclaimed. As we continue on through the book of Acts, lots of statements. 
When, when, when Paul comes to Iconium or Thessalonica or Berea or Athens or Corinth or Ephesus, all these places are just going to be, he's, he's in the synagogues. He's teaching for months in the synagogues. But we don't have recorded exactly what it is that they, what they taught. We're told they're reasoned in the synagogues. We're told that they were there every Sabbath trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks of their message in the synagogues. But we're lacking the specifics, except for this morning, our text. Paul's sermon begins in Acts chapter 13 and verse 16. But we need to catch up on the context so you understand. Beginning in verse 13, we read this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And again, it would be helpful for us to look at some maps like we did last week to get a bearing of where, where Paul was. I showed this map to you last week, and there's the map of the whole world, and then we're going to zoom in then on that little red spot um, right where, where Paul was, and that's the, the little red spot there. We see Paul and Barnabas traveling on the first missionary journey, and they began right there in Antioch. If you remember, this is that great church in, uh, in Antioch that, that God was really blessing. The hand of the Lord was upon that church. They were a generous church. They were a church filled with good teachers. Many were coming to the Lord at that place. And from there, they were sent out on their first missionary journey. They took the 15-mile the walk down to Seleucia. Um, and from there, they set sail just across the sea to uh, the island of Cyprus, landing there on the eastern side in the city of Salamis. Um, and then it says they, they passed through all of Cyprus as they were preaching that verse I read for you in Acts chapter 13, verse 5, preaching in all the synagogues of the Jews. And, and last week we landed right there in Paphos. You remember when Paul was there and uh, he got wind, uh, the Sergius Paulus, the proconsul there, heard about what's happening, invited Paul and Barnabas to speak. But there was a magician in the court, uh, Bar-Jesus who tried to ban them and stop them from preaching. And so Paul lashed out at them. And eventually, Sergius Paulus right, came to believe in the Lord as he was astonished at the preaching of the Lord. Well, this morning, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas set sail once again. And they're going to go up to Perga in the region, Pamphylia. That's all, all caps. That's Perga in Pamphylia. That's exactly what it says. Look at verse 13 again. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, sadly, at the end of verse 13, we read this, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, there's nothing here that gives us any word of indication about why he left, but we will find out as we get to chapter 15 about what a, what a division this caused between Paul and Barnabas. This, this leaving of, of John Mark uh, back to Jerusalem was essentially a desertion of some type, it became this catalyst of conflict between Paul and Barnabas, so they were forced to separate from a difference of opinion, but We'll get more into that when we come to the end of chapter 15. But it's Paul and Barnabas and, and maybe some others, we don't know, who arrive in Perga of Pamphylia, but it seems like they didn't spend much time there in that coastal town. Instead, they immediately headed north, and uh, they headed north to Antioch, verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So you can see Pisidia there in all caps. So Pisidia, Pamphylia is a region. Pisidia is a region. Galatia is kind of a whole region as well of all those things, often called Pisidian Antioch. This is different than Syrian Antioch from which they came. In fact, in the ancient world, there are up to 16 different cities called Antioch. Um, Just how it was, named after a Roman ruler named Antiochus. Uh, It was a journey up from Perga up to Antioch that was a bit difficult, treacherous. 
Uh, it was about 90 miles and up through the mountains, uh, going up from the shore, the sea, to about 3,500 feet, uh, 3,600 feet above sea levels with lots of ups and downs. This wasn't a particularly safe route as bandits and robbers were known to line the road, waiting to trounce upon um, unsuspecting and vulnerable travelers. But Paul and Barnabas did arrive safely. And here we are in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch. And we read in verse 14, went on there from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So what I want for you to hear is to catch what's going on. We're here in Antioch of Pisidia and Paul and Barnabas enter into the synagogue, which means it's the the Sabbath day. It's going to be a day that's just much like this. And so really what, what I thought about doing here today is really help us. We got, we got a synagogue here, right? We're here, and Paul and Barnabas walk in the back. Where do you think they're going to sit? New visitors, new places, what are they going to do? I think maybe, maybe they'll come in, they'll kind of sneak in and, and sit here, and then they're going to sit and enjoy the service. And uh, Brian Mulder's going to get up, and he's going to announce people and welcome everybody with some announcements. How There's a bar mitzvah next month that... Uh, Aaron is going to have that, and, and then there's a social at, at Hannah's house. We're going to hear about that. Um, and, and then, right, there's a teaching of the Torah every Wednesday. Of course, you're invited to come to that. And the Cohens are moving next week, so we're going to need some help with that. So after then, the announcements, then they'd probably start with a Shema. And uh, Paul and Barnabas would have been here in the, in the pew and would listen to the Shema being read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And everyone would say that all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And, and that would start, right, the, the service. And, and then after that, there'd probably be some prayers, maybe some prayer requests shared in a small church like this. And then the scripture reading, they, they read from the law, read from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, some type of reading in there. And then they would have read from the prophets. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the, the rulers of the synagogue somehow sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And what do you think Paul did? You want, anyone you want to say something? So Paul stood up and Moses answered, I got something to say. And he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but after me, one is coming, the sandals of his feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. At that moment, they left, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Right? Come back, they were saying. Come back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts followed after Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Fast forward a week. Right? This is then um, the next Sabbath. Almost the whole city had gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. Like, can you imagine all of Love's Park coming and gathering together in this place of crowded and standing room only, couldn't find a seat? And Paul was standing up front and beginning to speak some things. And says in verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying to these Jews, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began spontaneously rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, right? Because the word of the Lord came to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected it. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed the sovereign hand of God on that synagogue there in Antioch. And so much happened right there in that sun, that Sabbath day and over next Sabbath days that the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, right? The whole region around Antioch. But the Jews stirred up, incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Said, you're not welcome here anymore. Paul and Barnabas, they were leaving. They shook off the dust from their feet and they went to Iconium. 
So they went out there. They left. And then it says in verse 52, right? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So it was not going to stop. Right? What, what Paul began, their preaching of Jesus, was going to continue on right there in Ephesus. And as Paul and Barnabas then went to Iconium, right? the ministry there continued on. Well, we're going to spend a, a few moments, a few weeks actually, looking at the sermon that Paul preached in, uh, in Antioch. My message is entitled, right, uh, a sermon in the synagogue, but really it's subtitled Preaching from the Pew. Because that's exactly what Paul did. He was not up front when he spoke these things. He was preaching from the pew. That is my subtitle. It is maybe another title of my message. We're going to look this morning only at verses 16 through 25. We've already seen the first two points. I've skipped over them quickly, but you'll, you'll see where they are. They, the arrival in Antioch, sailing from Perga, um, sailing to Perga and Pamphylia, and then across the land, up the mountains, up to Antioch and Pisidia. And in verse 15, we see the invitation to preach. And of course, Paul like jumped at the chance, and I tried to express the eagerness that he had there as he stood, stood up and spoke, and perhaps he spoke longer than the rulers of the synagogue were expecting. Um, and, and I know I can relate. I remember I was a senior in college, and uh, the Lord was working greatly in my heart, in <clears throat> my life, and I attended a small church, and there were about 40 people in the church. And the pastor heard my testimony and my story about what the Lord was doing in my life. And, and one day he asked, would you like to come up front and to share your testimony to the congregation? I was like, okay. And uh, kind of more unprepared a little bit, I took probably about 15 minutes. And um, in giving my testimony, I had people open in their Bibles and open them up to the passage. It really impacted me in my life, Matthew chapter 7, and went through that passage about the many and the few, and the, the many I always thought were like the world religions, but it's the many in the professing church who are going to say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, let me into your kingdom, and he's going to say, no, depart from me, I never knew you. It's only the few who enter. You look at the professing church today, and it's, it's only a few of the professing church today that will enter the kingdom of God. Many will be banished. And that, that really shocked me because I'd just grown up in a weak church all my life. And I, I remember challenging those in that church that one day uh, that I, I said, why don't you be one of the few? Make sure that you're one of the few. Don't be one of the many who are deceived, who, who are singing praise to Jesus, or coming to church and singing the, the songs on the screen and singing the words from the hymnal and maybe reading the Bible, but it's not making an impact in their life. You may be turned away. And that's really the, the truth that caused me to, to go to seminary, even to study the Bible, just because I was never taught that in church. I was always taught that, well, we're good. We're Christians. We're all good here. There are people here who may not enter the kingdom of heaven because they're not believing in Jesus. And so be part of the few. And so I, I, I preached like that as a senior in college, took up 15 minutes or so, and I, I sat down. I remember the pastor of the church saying, well, this morning my sermon's going to be a little bit shorter than normal. But that's what Paul did when he had the opportunity, the invitation to preach. He seized the opportunity to speak about his Savior. If you remember nothing else from this message, just remember that. He had an opportunity to speak and he spoke. So if you have opportunity, speak. Okay? Speak. Now, your opportunity may not be in front of a church or in front of a synagogue. And your opportunity may be different, right? In front of a, uh, a neighbor or a classmate or a customer or your cousin's. Whatever it is, would encourage you, just like, like Paul, be ready to speak, right? I've told you before, be ready for three things. 
Be ready to preach, be ready to pray, and be ready to die. That's what we all need to be ready to do. The application of the book of Acts. Jesus calls us to be my witnesses. Be witnesses for the Lord and tell others of Jesus. So Paul did on that Sabbath day. He seized the opportunity in the synagogue in Antioch. And he spoke of the working of God. That was really his, his main point, his, his first point. This we're going to look at, verse 17 through 25. And how God worked in the life of Israel and ultimately gave them a Savior. This is my, my third point, And this is Paul's point from 16 and, and following. We're really beginning in verse 17. That God has been working in Israel from the start of that country. He never gave up. He just continued to pursue after them through good times and bad times. Through times when Israel was faithless, God was always faithful. He begins with Abraham in verse 17, the the founding father of the people of Israel. And then he gives a quick, quick history of the people of Israel, ending with a statement in verse 23 that God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So how well do you know the history of Israel? Can you say it in a minute or two? It's really what, what Paul did. And we're going to take a little bit longer, but we're going to look at first, he speaks about Abraham. Now, Paul doesn't mention him by name, but it's obvious who he's talking about. Look at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. That's how God dealt with the people of Israel. That's how God initiated. It wasn't Abraham initiating with God. It was God initiating with people. God chose them. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. He was minding his own business in the land of the Chaldeans. His family was a family of idol makers. And God appeared to him. And God said, Genesis 12, 1 and 2, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here was Abraham. And here was Sarah. And just those two. Then they went out and said, Go out, I'm going to make a great nation from you. And he's like, Okay. That wasn't Abraham's plan. This was God's plan. And from Abraham came a nation of several million people. God was working in them. It's exactly what Paul continues with in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, right? Chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. This greatness wasn't because of their own goodness. It was because of God's electing hand. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. See, God chose you of everybody. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and choose you. For you are the fewest of the peoples. You were only one. You were only Abraham. But it's because the Lord loves you that he chose you. And listen, what's, what's true of Israel is true of us as well. See, see we aren't God's people because we're great. We're God's people because He's chosen us by the goodness of His kindness, patience, forbearance in Christ Jesus. It's not that we love God and then God says, oh, you love me, I guess I will love you back. No, we love because He first loved us. He entered into our house. He entered into our life. And that's what took place with with Abraham. And that's what took place, the history of Israel. That's where Paul begins. God's working in the life of Abraham, choosing him. And making him to be a great nation. Well, Paul then continued by speaking Moses about Moses. Again, he didn't use his name. I think he was going so fast that he couldn't even use these guys' names is what he did. But he talks about Moses there at the end of verse 17. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That is, uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. In that one sentence, 
with uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt, summarizes 15 chapters in the book of Exodus. And I trust you remember the story. Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians. They cried out to the Lord in their distress. And God remembered his covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he remembered that these are his people. And then he brought them out of slavery with a, in a mighty way, showing off his power through these ten plagues in which he afflicted the Egyptians. It was his mighty arm that led them out of the, the land again. It's a working of God in the life of his people. And as he brought them out, we see the patience of God. This is still 18, this is still um, Moses. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I mean, put up with, that's like you're enduring somebody, you're really not so happy about it, but you're enduring with them because they were a faithless people. God had promised to give them the promised land of Canaan if they would just go and take the land. But though two of the spies came back and said the land is good, the ten said, oh, the land is bad, and uh, the land is good, but the people are big, and the Anakim live there, and they're giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers born. We can't go. And they cowered in unbelief, and God said, you all will die in the wilderness, anyone 20 years old and up. And so he endured that generation, letting those people die off. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Yet, still he put up with them. Still, he, he had a heart for them. He had a, a mind on them. He he was still faithful. He didn't give up on his promises. Those promises didn't come immediately. But after 40 years, then that new generation rose up around a new leader, Joshua. Again, he didn't mention his name. But Joshua was the one who, who led Israel, the mighty hand, into the promised land. That comes in verse 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. You, know, you read Joshua and you read about the, the battle of Jericho. Obviously, it was the hand of God that came in and took Jericho, right? Because the, the nation, all they did was they just, Israel just walked around the city. And they blew trumpets and the wall came down and they conquered. And that's how God conquered. God was moving and did that. And one would think that those who saw such a faithful working God who destroyed the seven nations, the Girgashites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and, and killed all those people off, you'd think that, oh, this is our faithful God who's made a covenant with us. We will follow him. But that's not what happened after the days of Joshua. After the days of Joshua, there were the judges. Right? For 450 years, that's what alluded to in verse 20. All this took about 450 years, and he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So for 450 years, you got these, these judges who time and time and time again right, would come and deliver Israel, deliver Israel, right? Because the Lord had a rocky relationship with them. They would, they would do well. They sought the Lord. They would do well, and things were going so well that they forgot the Lord. Then they'd forget the Lord. Then they'd be in distress. They'd cry out to the Lord for help, and God would provide a judge to come and deliver them, and they'd do well. And then when they did well, they forgot the Lord. And they forgot the Lord, they did bad, and, and then uh, they cried out, Oh, God, help us, come save us, and God would send them a judge. And it was always when things were going well that they forgot the Lord. It's when things were difficult that they cried out to the Lord, Oh, America, oh, Disneyland America, beware of prosperous times. Those times we easily can forget the Lord. But that was the time of judges, alluded to in verse 20. Finally then, it says God gave them Samuel, the prophet, a genuine prophet of the Lord, who heard from the Lord, who led the people of Israel. And, and the people of Israel, though, at one point demanded a king. They said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And Samuel said, it's not good. He says, if you get a king, think of all the terrible things that are going to happen. That king is going to take your sons, bring them into the military where they may die. 
away from you. He's going to take your daughters. They're going to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to take the best of your fields for the government. He'll tax your harvest and take a portion of your flocks. Just more and more and more and more will be taxed and more will be taxed and more will be taxed if you have a king. It feels like we have a king in America. Samuel says, it's not good. You don't want a king. You want the Lord to be your king. It says in 1 Samuel 8, 18, it says, in that day, though, when you have this king and all these oppressions come, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day because you've chosen this for yourself. Kind of, God, God oftentimes says, well, if that's what you want to live, then you live that way. But they wanted a king, and, and even God gave the assurance to Samuel, listen, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. And they asked for a king, verse 21, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Saul was a handsome man, taller than all the rest. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was a strong man. He was a capable man. But he was an ungodly man. He refused to follow in obedience to the Lord. And after 40 years, eventually the Lord removed him. He removed the people's choice for a king and placed him with God's choice for a king. That is David the mighty David, and he gives testimony here, verse 22, and when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And for years, David walked in the ways of the Lord, and he led Israel well. God made a huge promise to David. Second Samuel 7, the Davidic promise was called, the, 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 the Davidic covenant, the promise to David. And this is a huge promise. I don't know if you know this passage. You need to know Genesis 12, like I read about, about Abraham coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You need to know 2 Samuel 7. It should be familiar to you. It's called the Davidic covenant. Listen to what God promises to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. From following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. This is God's hand of blessing upon David. Second Samuel 7, 9. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Right? I'm going to promise to you, David, a, a kingdom of peace. And from that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, that's not just a house referring to the, the temple is kind of what that's referring to. But the house is also referring to like the lineage and a reputation and a kingdom it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, Solomon, who shall come form your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, there's a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before you. But Solomon then after his reign, though, was was not established forever because of his sin. But he says, and for your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And there are only two ways for the, 
the Davidic kingdom to be established forever, for a, a son of David to sit on the throne forever, either needs to have a son in perpetuity, like always the son, always the son reigning, always the son reigning, always the next son reigning, always the next son reigning, or there could be a son that lives forever who rules and reigns. And that's what took place with Jesus. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that on your throne should be established forever. One of your seed. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring. That is of David. Right from the Davidic line. Of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a Savior. Jesus as He promised. This is the working of God. Right from Abraham. Through Moses and Joshua and the judges. And Samuel and Saul and David. Eventually comes Jesus. Justice was promised in 2 Samuel 7. Just as promised in Genesis 49. Just promised in all the prophets of this Messiah who would come of the line of David. And through the ups and downs of God's relationship with the people of Israel, God faithfully worked to bring them a Savior, Jesus, as it says at the end of verse 23, just as He promised. Now, this was the culmination of Jewish history. They've been expecting it for years. They're expecting the scepter from the line of Judah. They're expecting the son of David to come and sit upon the throne. And now Paul was saying, this man has come according to promise. He's a king who would come as a savior. And for them, they heard this message differently than us. I mean, we, many of us have heard the message, right? You just believe and trust in Jesus. Right? Trust and sacrifice upon the cross for your sins. But see, we've always had that perspective. All of us were born, or even were little, right? Because Jesus lived and died 2,000 years ago. But for these people, it was just recent. And they heard the message for the first time. And for them, the message was coming to them. That's why in chapter 13, verse 48, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They're like, the salvation has come to us. It is ours. The Savior has come. And, and that's where Paul is going to speak about forgiveness in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So believe in Jesus and trust in him and your sins can be forgiven. But realize in Antioch how different it would have been when they heard it for the very first time. The message of the salvation that came to them, this message of Jesus, all lining up. And then, uh, Paul transitions to recent days. He says in verse 24, Now before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. This is, this is Jesus, this is John the Baptist as a forerunner. This is Elijah the prophet as, as prophesied by Malachi chapter 3. Before the Messiah comes, right, there'll be one coming and pointing the way. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance, right? When, when people came to trust in the Lord and, and came to believe in Him, He was immersing them in, their, in, in water just as a symbolization of their forgiveness of sins, which we're going to see today very soon in, with uh, Emma being baptized. Just as a symbol of being washed and being cleansed, that John the Baptist was proclaiming that. He was saying, something is changing. Israel, we need to be right with God. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to, we need to turn from our wicked ways, and we need to, to trust in Him. That was John the Baptist. And many people thought that John the Baptist was the one. Many people thought that John the Baptist was Elijah. In fact, even disciples came out. Are, are you the one? Are, are you Him? And as John was finishing his course, it says in verse 25... He said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. So it's not about John the Baptist. He says, I am not he. In fact, I am not worthy even to untie the sandals of his feet. 
That's the one coming after me. Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus even says, the greatest of all men born of women. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. All pointing to Jesus. All pointing to that special one. That one in the working of God that's come down right through Christ. And really, this is a, this is a good point for us to turn to, to finish my message this morning. Just even right here, just pointing to Jesus. Realizing the working of God through the history of the Old Testament. That God has always been faithful with His people and been faithful from Abraham all the way up through Jesus. And now Jesus has come. Are you going to believe in this Messiah? It's going to let him skip by. And sadly, we're going to see the Jews in Acts chapter 13 just let the Messiah go. They're going to hate this message of Paul. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, who heard this message of Paul, embraced it. And then through the, through the rest of the uh, missionary journeys, we're going to see similar things. We're always going to see conflict. Jews hearing the message first and rejecting it. Maybe some got it. As we saw in verse uh, 44, that some were following, verse 43, some were following after Paul and Barnabas. It said, continue in the grace of God. Some will embrace it, many will reject it, but the Gentiles, many of the Gentiles will come in. And I trust you've come in. I trust you believe and trust in Jesus. With this little sermon in the synagogue, preaching from the pew. And we'll pick it up, verse 26, next week. Let's, let's pray right here. Father, I do pray... God, that we would grasp the, just the scope of what Jesus was when He came to die on the cross for our sins and bring forgiveness of sins to His people. Lord, I pray that this, this preaching from the pew might impact us all today. If you realize Paul and his boldness, we realize that the message of Your working in the midst of Your people. God, grasp the Help us to grasp, O oh God, the, the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of, of God that's in Christ Jesus that would send His Son to die for our sins that we simply need to believe. And may we not be like those people at Antioch, like those Jews at Antioch who rejected Paul and Paul's message, stirred up persecution against him and drove him out of their district. God, I know there's some, perhaps even here today, who are driving Jesus out of their district, want nothing to do with Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts, that you would bring people to the Savior. Father, we thank you for Jesus and all that he's done. God, may the rest of today be glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.